Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. Right now, 12 million Americans are on a precipice. They are just weeks away from losing unemployment benefits. In fact, that money could disappear the day after Christmas. A deadline set by Congress, unless Congress itself passes new relief. Millions more people could be evicted from their homes. Thousands more businesses could close. Those are the terrible facts at this year end of 2020. Here are the people suffering them. You don't think you're going to lose your job? Things happen. But I'm sure things are going to get better and, you know. This is my check, but I ain't making it with $300. It's literally $300. I have nowhere to go. It makes you feel like a failure as a parent, as a man, to know that you can't provide for your own It's parent. like if I don't even deserve my own kid. You have to try to relax and think of the better things because it wasn't always like this. Me and her just wear the same clothes almost every day. Make sure we got you know, toilet paper and a little bit of snacks for the kids. It's not, you know, Democrat. It's not Republican. We're just people. We need help. And so, you know... I would take all the politics out of it. That's what we're telling everybody here, you know, take it all out and let's just be people and help each other out because we got to get through this together. On Tuesday, President-elect Joe Biden promised Americans, quote, help is on the way as he introduced his new economic team. A first-rate team that's going to get us through this ongoing economic crisis and help us build the economy back, not just build it back, but build it back better than it was before. From NPR and WBUR, I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point and Build Back Better Than It Was Before. Well, that's a pretty big promise. So what would that economy look like? How would the nation get there? And can it, with the cruelty seemingly tolerated by certain members of Congress, can the Biden team itself meet the challenge? Well, lots of big questions looking for answers today. And we're going to turn to our money ladies to help us figure this out, Rana Faruhar and Michelle Singletary. Rana is the global business columnist and associate editor at the Financial Times and CNN's global economic analyst. Her most recent book is called Don't Be Evil. Rana, welcome back. Thanks for having me. And Michelle is the personal finance columnist for The Washington Post, nationally syndicated across the money. That's her column, The Color of Money. Michelle, it's good to have you back, too. I'm so glad to be here. And you know, we're going to throw in a bonus today on this Friday. (laughs) We're bringing Jack Beatty on point news analyst here. Jack, you ready to keep up with these two? No. Hello, <laughs> <laughs> Hello Rana. Hello, Michelle. So Hi, Jack. <laughs> All right. So here, so we're going to get to these big questions about what does a, a 21st century U.S. economy that truly benefits all Americans or works for all Americans look like? We're going to get to those questions in just a second here. But I actually need to start with the politics because the immediacy of the need is so profound. And if you just give me a second here... Um, my staff already knows this. I'm obsessed with the Chris- with Charles Dickens' The Christmas Carol, which I read every year during this time of year. I mean, it, it, talk about something that's, you know, 150 years old and is as urgently relevant today as, as it's ever been. And there's this part that I read where Scrooge has just met Marley's ghost and then he looks out his window and he sees the, the skies full of phantoms. And some of those phantoms wearing those chains that they forged in life are members of the government. Okay, and like Charles Dickens goes out of his way to point that out. And I just I just I was just thinking and, you know, like, uh, Michelle, I'm going to throw it to you first. I feel like the halls of Congress need to be haunted right now um, to get people to get those folks really going here, because I just don't know how much more of the suffering elected officials can can tolerate day in and day out without feeling a moral obligation to do something. I, I totally agree. Um, we have one of the richest Congresses we, we've had in, you know, I, I think forever. Um, and I, they don't have a pulse on the regular issues that people face. I, In the beginning of the episode, I just took note of what one of the uh, 
individual said, take politics out of it. He said, we are just people. And they don't see that. They see that as maneuvering. And can I get what I need for the people who contributed to my campaign? They're not looking at right now. We need to help people who can't put food on their table, who are worried about the roof over their head during the winter time. You know, and and we have to take the politics out of it. We've all got to come. They've got to come to the table. And they haven't done that because you know what? They got their jobs. They have good health insurance. They don't have to worry about food on their table. And that's a problem. Mm. Rana? You know, I totally agree. But what I, I've, I've begun to try and think about this in, in real politic terms, if you will. Um, we do have um, a Congress that is totally polarized. Um, I'm going to name names. I mean, I think Republican Mitch McConnell is doing all that he can to poison the waters right now uh, around cutting a deal for fiscal stimulus, which we absolutely need so that those voices that you uh, very rightly put at the front of this broadcast, I love that you that you had those voices of real people that are hungry. I mean, food insecurity is at record levels. Uh, unemployment is about to spike again. We, we, there are, I know, I talk to these people, there are Republicans who want to cut a deal, but there is a party right now, and it's not totally one-sided, but I, I do think that um, Republican leadership is making it difficult to get to the table and, and make a deal on fiscal stimulus. I think that this is going to come back to haunt that party for generations if if it doesn't change. I mean, we are we're about to, you can already see it in the November jobs figures. We're starting to see that slowdown that we knew was coming, right? As uh, certain states go back into quarantine, I can already see it. I'm in, I'm in Brooklyn, New York. I look around and, you know, restaurants that had opened up for the summer had the outdoor seating. Everything's starting to close. You're starting to see more out of, out of business uh, signs or on the streets. So we're going to go into that very dark period. At the same time, you've got red states like uh, Iowa, for example, mm-hmm. which has a 50% test positivity rate. South Dakota, ditto. My brother lives there, has to drive two hours to get a test. You can't get one unless you're asymptomatic or unless, sorry, unless you have symptoms, which is like crazy. It's where New York was in March. So we are about to see um, almost, I mean, I, I don't think it's too strong to say the kind of mass murder of large swaths of populations that have governors and, and representatives and congresspeople that are simply not doing anything. And I do think, and I, this is my message to the politicians, there, there will be there will be heck to pay for that. I mean, I think that it's going to haunt the Republicans, um, and I think that it's going to come back in the midterms if they let this happen. So, Jack, let me turn to you here. Um, so, to, to to both Rana and Michelle's points, uh, I'm seeing here that you know there's the beginning of maybe a coalescing around that 908 billion dollar package, uh, that compromise package. We know that the president elect has has urged uh, Congress to pass it. All the while saying that when he, after his inauguration, he plans it on asking for more because uh, it's going to be the need is greater than that. Um, and just yesterday, I'm seeing here reports that uh, when House Speaker Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell actually met, they met for the first time since the election. That's a positive sign. But at the same time, Mitch McConnell, I think I read here that he's also circulating a proposal for a smaller package which would be yeah. which would intentionally be undermining any uh, any uh, achievement of compromise for that 900 billion dollar package jack so what's going on here well uh you know i think michelle puts uh, her finger on one of the problems um you know when paul wellstone was elected to the senate uh, back in the 90s he celebrated uh the occasion because he said I'm going to get a raise. He was going to get a raise of about forty or fifty thousand dollars a year. He was a he was a college instructor. Uh, he was the only member of the Senate of whom that was true. These people are very comfortable, uh, and their 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 complacency is built into how they how they live and what they see. And even Nancy Pelosi, who let's face it, she did pass in May a $3 trillion stimulus bill that would have 
done all of these things that we need done and have done them months ago. So she really can't be knocked on that. But on the other hand, she does fly to the West Coast first class every week or whenever. <laughs> and, and, you know, the people you rub elbows with are, you know, are, are not uh, – they aren't the men and women on the street. And uh, that divorce of the leadership class from the, from the, mm. the strains and stresses of normal people, that is a real issue in this country. You know, I want to pick up on that. I, I, I think that that as, as we start to see the Democratic appointments, you can already see that concern um, from the far left of the party about who are we putting into this administration? Are we going to see the Democratic Party stepping away from that corporatist wing, from that, you know, real or perception that, that they are in bed with with um, vested interests and, and big big power on Wall Street and Silicon Valley. You know, uh, uh, I actually think, and I know we'll get to this, um, Magna, but I actually think that by and large, some of the key appointments, particularly Janet Yellen, has, have been terrific. But it's interesting that you're, you're already seeing everyone be very sensitive to, all right, is, uh, are these folks from private equity? Are, are they people that are going to make the right decisions? Or is there going to be another revolving door, as we've seen for decades, between Goldman Sachs and the economic uh, advisors of whatever administration happens to be in power. That's a big deal. And I think Joe Biden has a very, very careful line to walk there right now. Yeah. Michelle, we've just got a minute to go. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I want to say, I don't think he needs to walk a line. You need to jump over that line full force. (laughs) I mean, you know, I mean, the the time to be timid is not now. And Mm. I appreciate the current, the incoming administration wanting to, you know, bring everybody to the table. But you know what? If they don't want to come to the table, lock them out. Um, Because this is the time to be bold and not, you know, stand still for politics when people are hungry and they're worried about keeping their kids in a safe, warm home. So if I'm looking at the appointments as well, and I think that the time to just go for people who don't have corporate interests is now. Mm. Well, Michelle Singletary, Rana Faruhar, and Jack Beatty stand by here. Now that we've waded through the politics, when we come back, we're going to take on that big question of, okay, what does an economy that works for all Americans need to look like? And can we get there? Can the Biden economic team, which he just announced this week, lead the nation there? We'll be back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash on point. That's Indeed.com slash on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the Balance Scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, midterm, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. 
Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This week, President-elect Joe Biden named his economic team, and we're asking the question of whether this particular economic team can push or lead the country forward into crafting an economy, a 21st century economy that truly works for all Americans, and what would that economy look like, especially, especially after this year of profound agony and suffering. I'm joined today by Rana Faruhar, Michelle Singletary, and Jack Beatty. And let's listen to a little bit of President-elect Biden on Tuesday when he announced his economic team, saying it's working Americans who built this country. Let's not forget who built this country. Working class and middle class people built this country, and unions built the middle class. And from the most unequal economic and job crisis in modern history, we can build a new American economy that works for all Americans, not just some, all. We need to act now, though, and we need to work together. And here's Janet Yellen. Yes, the former Fed chair and now the the nominee for uh, Biden's secretary of the Treasury. She said if the new administration doesn't move quickly, the economy will go into, quote, a self-reinforcing downturn. And she turned to the president-elect and said this. We share your belief in the American dream of a society where each person with effort can rise to their potential and dream even bigger for their children. I pledge as Treasury Secretary to work every day towards rebuilding that dream for all Americans. Jack Beatty, let's start with you, because I know that that line in particular really caught your attention. You want to tell me why? Because I think it it uh, it crystallizes the vision, uh, the ideal vision of the Democratic Party, which is to address this fading American dream, the sense that so many people, that for so many people, it is out of reach. I mean, the, you know, the Times uh, pointed out in an editorial this week that uh, productivity since the 70s has more than doubled. Wages have lagged far behind. Closing that gap, making it such that prosperity is more evenly uh, divided. That is uh, a crucial task for, for for the Democrats. It's and it's it's all about staying in office too, because unless they deliver a better life for more Americans, their tenure on power will be limited. So that's the vision, and whether they can get there, the obstacles are many. Okay, so we'll talk about the specific people that uh, Biden uh, put forth this week in just a second. But um, from all three of you, and Michelle, I'll start with you. Let's let's hear a little bit more about what the vision for this 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 new kind of economy would be. Jack mentioned the paramount importance of wages. I mean, we also have. I know you 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 talk about debt a lot, Michelle. Um, there's all the regulatory structure. I mean, it feels like every level of the economy is ripe for some kind of renewal. It absolutely is. I mean, I think what we, what we are saying is that there was a problem before the pandemic, and the pandemic just made it worse. It really um, ripped the Band-Aid off of how we were sort of held together as a country. So wage stagnation, meaning people couldn't earn enough to really get ahead. And so, you know, lots of Republicans like to point to the low unemployment numbers, but you have to look past those numbers and look at where people able to sustain themselves. So they maybe they're working, but it's not enough uh, to, to, to sort of save for your retirement, for example, or to save to send your children to school so that they could be lifted up into the middle class or higher. Um, you, you look at, you know, job training. Where are the jobs um, in, the, in mid-America and, and, and on the coast? So, you, so the point is, is that they have to get in there and do some things, minimum wage, you know, the ability of people to get an education without going into decades of debt. Uh, so it, there, all of these things have to be addressed quickly um, before the pandemic, which has already put people out of work and, and who knows when they go back, is going to 
take people further. Mm. Mm. You know, I, I, I agree. I think that one of the things I've been really pleased about is all along in the campaign, Joe Biden talked about rebuilding an economy based on work, not wealth. That's yeah. a really key phrase. Um, you know, I'm, as, as you all know, I wrote my first book about the fact that in the last 40 years, we've actually had an economy that was reworked to focus much more on asset price inflation, on, rise, uh, on rising stock markets. That's been great for the top 12% of the population that owns 85% of the stocks. At that same time, as Jack said, you've had stagnant wages, you've had lowered productivity. So basically, over the last 40 years, you've had the disconnection of the fortunes of Wall Street and Main Street, of the fortunes of companies and the countries and citizens that live in them. And I do think that at a fundamental level, the Biden administration understands that. That's a big deal. That's a big, I mean, it sounds esoteric, but it's actually a huge deal because really up until this point, you have not had a treasury secretary on either side, on either party for half a century that, like Janet Yellen, believes that something is fundamentally broken in the economy at that level and needs to be fixed. Okay. So what then would a treasury secretary Yellen do? What should she do? And by the way, just, 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 just to help you out here, Makers and Takers is that book. It's an excellent book, everyone. Just to... <laughs> I, wasn't gonna, I was gonna, not going to plug myself. You've already done that several That's times. That's my job Maybe. here. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, well, let, let me just step back. You know, I, I think it's important, actually, to get into some personal details. I, so I, I know Janet Yellen. I've interviewed her many times. I did the first um, big interview with her after she was uh, appointed Fed chair several years ago. She is the real deal. Believe me, she is the real deal. She grew up in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Her father was um, uh, was a doctor who used to see dock workers, union laborers, many of whom would sometimes be in work, out of work. She saw literally kitchen table economics in her home. Unemployment made a deep impression on her. She believes um, in the idea that unemployment is not just a problem economically, but it's a social problem. You know, we've talked about and and people have, I'm sure, heard about the idea of deaths of despair. You know, there was mm-hmm. some really wonderful work done by Angus Deaton and Ann Case, two academics, around the fact that when people are unemployed, particularly when they're unemployed for longer periods of time, it's not just that they can't buy stuff and their families are food insecure or lose their housing. They lose their self-esteem, higher levels of depression, ultimately higher levels of suicide. So she believes profoundly that this is the, the blinking red you know, problem for, for our time. And I think that she, when she takes policy decisions, she's going to be taking them based not on what's best for the markets, but on what's best for Main Street. Now, that will be a very... A tricky line to jump over, you know, as, as Megna says, because there's a lot of vectors right now. And as we transition from being an economy that is essentially based on stock market wealth to one that is based on more on income wealth, that's going to be a tricky process. There's going to be bumps. But I think that she will um, think a lot about keeping monetary policy going and, and fiscal policy going together in the direction that will get us to full employment. I think that she's going to be weighing in on um, a lot of the deregulation that Trump, the Trump administration has, mm. has pushed during their four years. I think that as the head of FSOC, which is the financial oversight body, uh, Treasury secretaries can can pull a lot of levers. She can start to get that Dodd-Frank banking regulation back in place. She can make the financial system safer. So even if we don't get to a fiscal stimulus deal with Congress, there's still a lot she can do. Okay. So let's, um, by the way, I can't take credit for that jumping over thought. That was Michelle. Give her full credit <laughs> for that. Yes, I'm sorry. It's okay. I say Michelle. No, sorry. no. <laughs> no problem. But you mentioned uh, y- uh, Janet Yellen's background um, this week when uh, Biden, Vice Pre- uh, excuse me, President-elect Biden uh, announced his economic team. Janet Yellen took a moment to describe how her father uh, opened a medical practice in working class Brooklyn during the Great Depression. Back then, Bush Terminal on the upper New York Bay was a thriving hub for manufacturing and transportation and for the union workers whose livelihoods depended on them. Knowing they didn't have cars, my father found a home near a bus line. He started his family practice in the basement while we lived on the floors above. At the end of the day, he would talk to me, my brother, and my mom about what work meant to his patients. 
our friends and neighbors, especially if they lost a job. The value of work always stuck with me. It's Janet Yellen earlier this week. Now, I would offer this. I mean, good for her for saying that, but yes, we, I think you like. I, I don't actually think it's all that revolutionary <laughs> to talk about the value of work. Amazingly, in the but, economics profession, it is. Oh, stunning, okay, but, yeah. okay. No, <laughs> actually, no, that's a good point. Uh, that's okay. But, so, so point taken. I, I'll step back from that. So we have a. Can treasure. I add something? Yes, please, mind? Michelle. Uh, so when she talks about when we talk about the value of work, I think we have to be very uh, uh, careful to make sure that we understand what that means. So uh, you know, I work with regular people all the time, and one of the things that they often say is, "I hate payday." And you think, well, why would you hate payday? Because by the time they, that money hits their account, it is taken for, for housing and other things. And, and there's nothing left over. So there is a despair that you have worked these 40-hour weeks. And at the end of the day, you can't build upon that. And so that's why when we look at uh, what the Fed and other, you know, uh, people are going to do in the Biden administration, we have to look what kind of work and how are they paid so there is extra to help people move ahead. Right. And that's why it's important. And so for, and, and let's talk about the Fed and some of the decisions. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. great when the interest rates are low if you are in the market for debt. But if you are not in the market, you don't have uh, you work for a company that doesn't have a 401k. You want to put your money in a bank account that is not going to earn that's going to earn more than one percent. And so yeah. there has to be a balance between keeping rates low enough that people can buy a home and cars and things like that. But also for people who don't have access to the market, nor do they want to be able to earn enough on that money in the bank that they can keep pace with inflation. Yeah. So let me just jump in here for a second. And Jack, I'm going to turn to you because uh, Rana and Michelle together are, are making what I think is an extraordinarily important point. Because yes, I mean, we need to have policies that move this economy back towards full employment. And at the same time, it wasn't that long ago, just a, like a year ago, where we, the economy essentially was at full employment. But the question was, who was in the labor force? And to Michelle's point, were they earning enough? They might have been employed, but were they earning enough to have a secure life? And so so bringing these two qualities together, good employment and full employment, if we're just looking at the world of, of work – I mean, what what can a federal government, what can an administration do to push us in that direction? Well, uh, one thing it can do is aid the union movement. Uh, uh, Rana's paper points out tomorrow, uh, today, that um, in the 80s, 20 percent of the force workforce was in unions. Now it's 10 percent and shrinking. Barack Obama ran in 2008 on something called card check, which essentially would allow – uh, make it much easier to unionize in workforces. It it got nowhere. Even in the Democratic uh, House, it got nowhere. Uh, until some way can be found to make it possible for people to organize collectively um, and, and to bring about the countervailing pressure that will, you know, force up uh, wages... I don't see that the government beyond uh, aiding education, beyond, uh, you know, keeping the the macro economy going and so on. I don't see that it can do much to raise wages. Uh, And so all of this, crucially, really, the most important economic event of the coming year is the Georgia Senate races. Mm -hmm. If the Democrats win both seats then the Democrats have a united government. And according to Moody's analytics and Goldman Sachs, if the Democrats have a united government, they can produce uh, 7 million more jobs than you get under the Republicans. And they can produce a a $4,800 a year increase in wages for the average American over that period because of the stimulative thrust of the Biden $5 trillion spending over a decade. So crucially, 
prosperity depends on that on those Georgia Senate races going to the mm. Democrats. Okay, Ron, I want to turn back to you for a second here because this does get us back to what you were you wrote about in Makers and Takers. Yeah, I, I I want to just make sure that we don't lose the thread of what Jack is saying yeah. because the federal government, the Biden administration right now, can leverage the power of federal government spending without congressional approval to use union labor. That is something he can do. I just wanted to make that point. Okay. So then in, in addition to that, um, you know, we were talking about how there's been this decoupling between uh, wages and productivity. And um, corporate leaders have been pretty open about where the, uh, the, 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 that, that gap, the, the, the profit from that gap is going, right? It's going to those asset bubbles that, that you've yeah. talked about and have written about. The ability for them to do that has been, uh, has been aided by deregulation, right? Financial yeah. deregulation that has been, um, you know, going whole hog over multiple administrations, Republican and Democrat. So mm-hmm. is there... Are there regulatory schemes that can that can be either put back in place or or created yes. to to, to yes. fix that? Yes, and that's why I'm glad you brought that up because you know as much as I totally agree with Jack, we need um, more union organizing. We need a fiscal stimulus program that pushes things forward. I'm not uh, super optimistic that either of those things are going to take off right away. What we can do is work with uh, the levers of regulation, which are which don't depend on congressional approval. And so Janet Yellen, as head, as I was saying earlier, as head of the FSOC, um, Financial Stability Oversight Committee, which was founded um, in the wake of the financial crisis to bring together all the nine regulatory bodies, the SEC, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, all the housing, you know, every kind of financial regulatory body, she can really push uh, back on deregulation. And she can also kind of shift the entire tenor of what regulation is trying to do. And one thing I'm quite um, uh, optimistic about, Gary Gensler, who um, was up at MIT recently, studying fintech. He used to be the head of the Commodities Futures Trading Commission. He's now Biden's uh, top financial markets advisor. Very smart guy. Used to work at Goldman Sachs, but came into the public sector and absolutely cleaned up um, to the extent that he was able to without bipartisan support, cleaned up the derivatives market um, under the Obama administration in the wake of the financial crisis. He and Yellen are going to work together with Powell, Jay Powell, the Fed chair. And I suspect that they are going to start thinking about ways to move us from an asset-dependent economy to a more income-based economy. I wonder and I hope if that might include a financial transaction tax because, you know, uh, there's so many times in which you're seeing deal-making that's just utterly unproductive. You know, it's great for the people that are on the other side of those huge fees. It It does nothing for Main Street. And I think it would be very interesting, particularly since Gary's been studying fintech, if we start to see control over Wall Street and, and some regulation around yeah. Silicon Valley coming together. Well, we got to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about people again. Uh, and Rana, Michelle and Jack will help us do that. We'll be back. This is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the stolen bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. On Monday, we are going to be dissecting and debating a policy idea that's coming out of democratic circles about student loan debt forgiveness. So we want to hear your stories. Uh, Do you have a huge amount of student loan debt? And is it really weighing your life and your progress down? Would you 
Would you benefit from debt forgiveness? Or are you someone who made a different choice, who said, I'm going to get a lower cost education so that I don't have to suffer under the weight of debt for the rest of my life? And you think student loan debt forgiveness might simply be rewarding people for making bad economic choices? Let us know at 617-353-0683. That's 617-353-0683. Eight, three. That's for Monday's show. Today, we are talking about the economic team that President-elect Joe Biden announced this week and taking on this bigger question about what really needs to happen to create a 21st century U.S. economy that works for all Americans. I'm joined today by Rana Faruhar, Financial Times Global Business Columnist and Associate Editor and CNN Global Economic Analyst. Michelle Singletary is with us as well. She's the nationally syndicated personal finance columnist for The Washington Post and author of The 21-Day Financial Fast. And Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst, is with us as well. So let's just listen to a couple more pieces of tape. This is the president-elect on Tuesday talking uh, about the fact that he sees that it's worth it right now, that the federal government should be running up massive deficits at the moment, and he explained why he thinks that. You know, the founders are pretty smart. I I could have gotten this lesson from the future Secretary of the Treasury. You know, there's a reason why all the states and localities have to have a balanced budget, but we're allowed federally to run a deficit in order to deal with crises and emergencies we have in the past. And we have to keep vital public services running. We have to give aid to local and state governments to make sure they can have law enforcement officers, firefighters, educators, as we did in the Recovery Act of 2009. President-elect Joe Biden on Tuesday. Now, one of the people he announced on that day was Cecilia Rouse. She will be, he wants her to be the chair of his Council of Economic Advisors. She's a dean and an economist at Princeton University. She was actually a guest on our show back in April. In April, we did an hour about uh, the economic catastrophe that the pandemic has spread across this country. And at that time, she talked about the importance of the national safety net. She said the safety net's inadequate. Uh, Things like Obamacare have really helped Americans in difficult times. And she added this. Paid sick leave is another example. It's very important for workers who are sick to stay home and to not share their sickness with their co-workers. So I do hope we look back at this and say, we need to have a stronger safety net. Not only do we understand that there are going to be situations that will befall all of us, even those who are working, um, and also those who may be without a job. That's Cecilia Rouse on On Point back in April. And by the way, go to onpointradio.org to hear that whole conversation. It was really interesting. Now, Michelle, this is exactly what you were talking about, right? That the That's right. people who are working... Um, they still can't get by. So, so we were talking about wages and jobs, but let's expand the scope a little bit here to you know the, these other aspects of the the safety net that I think folks increasingly will say they 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 need to to survive. That's right. You know, I was thinking as she was talking of, about the safety net, uh, for example, COBRA. So we have lots of people who have lost their job and, and, and maybe they can't get into the marketplace. So if you lose your job, you can keep the health insurance from your previous employer, but you have to pay all the penalties. All the, I'm sorry, all the premiums in addition to a 2% administrative fee. But on average, based on how much it costs for family coverage, that's like $1,800 a month. Who can afford that? Regular folks. And so perhaps they need to put on the table some sort of subsidy for COBRA as you're moving from one job to the next if you don't qualify for a subsidy um, um, in the uh, healthcare marketplace. So those are the kinds of things that we're talking about. You know, uh, uh, if you are trying to look for work and you, you're you in between jobs, how do you take care of health, uh, child care? Um, we, we know there's a child care uh, crisis right now, you know, with people, even if you can work from home if you've got little folks and you might be listening now you're trying to work and you've got to try to figure out how to help your little people uh and so you know we've got to i am a big believer in not having debt right i'm all about that but now the republicans after running up a deficit um yeah. are saying oh no 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 now we have to stop you know you yeah. stop right in the middle of a pandemic are you kidding me yeah. it's cruel it's just simply cruel 
It's also classic. It's what the Republicans have been doing for the last 40 years, running up to cutting taxes, um, not cutting budgets, but then blaming the Democrats when they get into office about about not being fiscally prudent. So uh, Michelle's entirely right. As much as I also am concerned about debt at a macroeconomic level, now is not the time to worry about it. In two years, yes. Five years, yes. Not now. Jack, what do you think? Yes, I mean, it's these, uh, you know, sort of uh, every time the Democrats win, there's this uh, uh, conversion almost overnight for Republicans. Um, and that hypocrisy uh, is, is, is just the. That know, is, it's that's right. The, uh, it's a conversion. Oh, example, right? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm a Christian. And so when people get saved, they're all of a sudden, yeah. you know, looking down on other the, the, the heathens. It's like, <laughs> what are you talking about? You were a heathen just yesterday. All <laughs> <laughs> Or, or as, or as uh, St. Augustine said in the brothel, save me, O oh Lord, just not yet. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you know? And, you know, we're laughing because, you know, I'm so talking about, you know, I get, I'm so proud of myself. I haven't cried yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> I mean, isn't that like a miracle, right? But um, the Post had this wonderful um, story that we ran recently on the city of Houston had a uh, day just before Thanksgiving where people could come and get a uh, food and they had a drone uh and okay now i'm gonna cry <laughs> uh and the drone just showed car after car after car and i i i, I watch that i go back and look at that story and look at that drone for myself because i'm not suffering but i need to feel that so that as i write about this i have a sense of empathy for people who are not doing as well as i and there was a quote from a guy in the story that says you know, it's a lot of people out here. I was telling my mom, you look at people pulling up a Mercedes and stuff, come come on. If a person driving a Mercedes is in need of food, you know it's bad. It's bad. Yeah. So it's really bad. I I would I would throw out a challenge to any member of Congress who feels slightly reluctant right now to at least pass interim relief before Christmas of all times of right. year. Walk the line, right? Go visit right. Go visit those mm. lines. Talk to people mm. in your own mm. state. Right. Just do it. Right. What do you have Just to lose? Like, for example, you know, McConnell's like, oh, we can't give them more, you know, uh, a stimulus payment or uh, we can't increase unemployment because that won't make them want to work. And you... Yeah, yeah, uh, <clears throat> okay, let me just calm down. <laughs> I don't want to say something on air that I'm going to get in trouble for. That is just idiotic on so many levels. It clearly means that you don't know what it's like to be unemployed and that you don't know that someone unemployed isn't going to sit home and want to take in government money as opposed to working for a living. There is something that helps your soul when you work. So the idea that people who are out of work because of pandemic, that we can't give them a stimulus payment because they want to want don't want to work clearly means that you are out of touch of what mm -hmm. it takes for a person to want to be a, a, a productive citizen in America. Yeah. So I want to I want to offer this thought because uh, I, I would more than happily talk for the rest of the time we have, which is sadly only eight more minutes um, about certain failings amongst certain very powerful members of Congress. But Jack, you and I yesterday were also discussing that, you know, this pandemic, of course, over and over again, we've said it is it is that mirror that's holding up the truth about our country. And it's a mirror you cannot look away from because it is surrounding us everywhere. But but you, you were telling me how you thought that maybe there there was – Something in that mirror that the Democrats themselves, the Democratic Party, isn't fully coming to terms with. And, and Michelle, actually, I think you mentioned a little bit about this before, about where are the jobs in terms of more in, in the cities? Where is, where, are the, where is the economic growth happening? Not equitably across the country. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, Jack? Sure. Uh, it's the gap between the country and the city. It has grown uh, really uh, extraordinarily in the Trump years, and it's been growing for a long time. Trump carried 2,400 counties in the country. They represent 29 percent of GDP. Mm -hmm. Joe Biden barely carried 500 counties. 
that those counties, those blue counties, represent 70 percent of GDP. It's as if the country were lifted up in the middle and the prosperity flowed, you know, on the one hand toward the West Coast and on the right hand toward the East Coast, snagging here and there on on cities, Cincinnati, Columbus, but finally hitting the coasts. The prosperity is is on the coasts and the people in the middle are are hurting. Now, they're not necessarily hurting in the sense of being impoverished, all of them. For example, Roberts County in the Texas panhandle with a population of barely 700 uh, went 95 percent for Trump. Uh, and, and one of the concerns there is uh, the inheritance tax. So people are worried about that. They're not. But the point is, the future went when people when you lifted up the, the country and, and the prosperity flowed to the coast. So went the future. So went economic hope. And because of the resentment of people in the flyover country, as it's called, they are a, you know, 73 million of them or so voted for Mr. Trump. And that was a vote really in its essence against democracy. Something's got to be done to even out the plane of prosperity in this other inequality, the inequality between country and city. Ron, I heard you uh, kind of uh, nodding there. Yeah, no, I mean, that 70-30 divide, which I've also written about, is 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 absolutely right. And Jack, I love this visual of the country being pulled up from the middle and all the wealth going to the coast, which is exactly right. That is what has happened for the last 40 years. And what's what's so tricky is it it didn't happen because of one silver bullet change. Mm -hmm. It happened because of lots of changes. Um, Some of them were policy changes, you know, um, deregulation of financial markets that pushed asset wealth to the coast that raised real estate prices that um, created a kind of a paradigm in which you can't even, you know, live and work in some places because they're too expensive. But those happen to be the places where the jobs are. So then you get this unequal situation. One thing, I'll try and be a little optimistic at the end here. I do think, you know, historically, economic pendulum shifts happen about once every 50 years. And I do think that as bad as things seem right now, and in some ways, because they are so bad, we are going to see a pendulum shift slowly but surely back towards some balance. And there are some things that are pushing that. I mean, right now, um, millennials, for example, which are, are taking over now from boomers as the largest working block, voting block, they are um, they have $2 trillion in student debt. They can't afford housing. Um they are they are beleaguered with debt, but they are going to start voting for policies that change the paradigm. That is that is going to happen. You can already see it in the AOC wing of the of the Democratic Party. So I think slowly but surely you will see the party begin to um, think more about work, not wealth, as we talked about. I think that there are some big silver bullet things that could be done. Healthcare. Michelle touched on this. Our healthcare system is just so overdue to be modernized, um, uh, you know, made made equal with what Europe is doing. There's just no doubt that we need some kind of national system. It doesn't have to be solely single payer. Could be, but that that's going to change. And I think that you're going to see an alliance of both citizens and businesses pushing for this. Businesses actually want this change too, because guess what? They have to pay huge premiums right. as well, and none of the inter- international competitors do. I also think final thing. I think we're going to see a student debt jubilee. We're going to talk about that on Monday, in fact. Um, So, Michelle, I'm going to turn back to you here for a second, but I want to offer this. Okay. So I actually see reason for optimism because I, you know, when there actually seems to be quite a bit of bipartisan support around some of these really core shifts that Rana was just talking about. Uh, People need good wages. They need good jobs. When you take uh, when you take certain language about Obamacare out of health care, people just they know they need a better safety net around health care. And they agree that that is a need support for child care, et cetera. There's bipartisan agreement that these things are necessary, which is actually terrific. So that's my hope for optimism. But then I become extremely pessimistic because we have a politics of naked power going on in Washington that is so decoupled from the reality of people that we've been talking about this hour, that the people who are going to make the decisions don't care about the bipartisan agreement amongst the American people when it comes to getting things done. So I end up on the pessimistic side of the ledger. Well, you know, my husband always complains that I'm a half glass full kind of girl. 
uh, and for a number of reasons. And, you know, as being a Black American, you're just constantly attacked and racism and all that stuff that makes up my personal history. And I and I, I have to say, and I hate to end on that because I think we have to have hope and I do have hope. But if we couldn't get some of this done, then the more than the in the middle of a pandemic where thousands of people are dying and they couldn't come to the table to to pass a stimulus package. What hope do we have for significant change when things get a little bit better? Because when things get a little bit better, people get cocky. The politicians get cocky. They run back to the people who pay for their elections. And that's what concerns me. Not actually that things will get better in terms of COVID, but that it will get better and they will lose the passion to help real people. Well, let's keep that passion going. There is a little time yet, at least for some kind of interim relief. So keep that passion going. Michelle Singletary, personal finance columnist for The Washington Post. Michelle, always an honor to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And Rana Furuhar, Financial Times Global Business Columnist, Associate Editor at the FT and CNN Global Economic Analyst. Equally an honor to have you back, Rana. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Those are our money, ladies. And Jack Beatty came along for the ride today. On Point News Analyst Jack, thank you so much. Thank you, Magna. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the Balance Scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions – And explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.